How many of you kind of took a deep breath when all that noise stopped? How many of you really like silence? How many of you, for how many of you is silence kind of awkward or difficult? None of you? A couple of you. Okay, thanks for being honest about that. For most of us, I suppose it probably depends on the situation. When you're on an airplane with a screaming baby and the screaming stops, silence is pretty welcome then, right? When you're in an uncomfortable conversation with someone and there's that really awkward lull, that's not so great. I chose this particular video because I wanted us to pause for a second to think about just how much noise there is in our lives. For most of us, it kind of feels like background noise that we think we've just tuned out. But we live in an unbelievably busy and noisy world. Even in those rare moments where we may find ourselves alone, we can get so uncomfortable with silence that we turn on noise just to make ourselves feel better, right? How many of you ever drive in the car without anything playing? Right, when we're in the car all by ourselves, we typically, most of us, some of us maybe, I shouldn't say all of us, but some of us turn on the radio. If you really don't want to be alone with yourself, you'll make a phone call. When you're at home, if you ever find yourself home alone, sometimes we turn on the TV, even if we're not watching it, just so there's noise on in the background. We've become so accustomed to noise that silence can become deafening to us. As I sat down to write the message for today, I was trying really hard to pay attention to the noises that were going on around me. I live in a pretty quiet house in a pretty quiet neighborhood, so there wasn't a whole lot of noise. It was Friday morning, and it was kind of cool out. I had my patio door open so my dog could run in and out. I have an air purifier in my living room, and I could hear the hum of that. And I heard an airplane go by overhead, and you could hear the leaves rustling in the wind and the sound of my fingers hitting the keyboard. And, of course, the rumble of thunder, because apparently we have that every day now. (laughs) That was about it, though. It seems pretty quiet, right? That's a pretty serene sort of atmosphere. But it was so noisy. It was so noisy. Why? Because the noise in my mind was deafening. It's shocking the number of things that we can think about all at one time, isn't it? I'm sitting here focusing, trying to write a sermon, but I'm, at, I'm already thinking about the next sermon series, if I'm being honest with you. I'm replaying a conversation that I got, on, got into this week. I'm hosting a debate in my mind about something that I saw on Facebook that I can't let go of. I'm thinking about what time dinner needs to go in the crock pot. Seriously, I did cook that day. That was a, that's a true story. <laughs> And I can't stop thinking about the thing that I'm angry about. I'm planning my vacation. I'm worried about a sick friend. Good, bad, or indifferent, the thoughts just won't seem to quiet themselves. Maybe not the specifics, but does that sound like any of your minds at any given point in time? Yeah. It's increasingly difficult to be quiet in this world. I don't even mean talking or, or even shutting off the external noise. We have so many things going on from day to day, and it, it has just become increasingly so much more difficult to quiet our own <coughs> selves. So this morning we are wrapping up our series, Fully You, where we've been talking about what it means to find our identity in Christ and in Christ alone. In doing this series, it has helped us to focus on the things that often get in the way of us knowing 
or believing or living into our God-given identities. We've talked about the importance of community in understanding our identity. We've talked about the impact that shame has on our understanding of our identity. And we've talked about the roles that both unforgiveness and anger play in hindering our sense of identity. We started with the thing that broke us, which is shame, and we're ending with the only one that can restore us, which is God. Now, before you roll your eyes at the obviousness and vagueness of that comment, just stick with me for a minute. God has always been our true sense of identity. We've talked about that all along. The thing is, we can search for and address our source of shame. We can spend our lives in good, faithful community. We can forgive the bitterness and hurt that we're carrying. We can even manage our anger. But none of those things alone will result in our finding our true identity if we are not spending time with the one in whom our identity is found. In Isaiah 30, 15, it says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. When we talk about our inability to shut our minds off, Isaiah 30, 15 is the ticket. Joel Malm, in his book from which I got the title of this series, he writes, at first glance, this seems counterintuitive. Strength usually comes from exertion. When you want to build strength, you create resistance against your muscles. You push and you stretch, no pain, no gain. But God says that spiritual strength comes from quietness and trust. Quietness and trust. Two things that we are awesome at, right? <laughs> Anders Ericsson is a psychologist who has spent lots of time researching what makes people an expert in any given field. And he concluded that to become an expert, it takes 10,000 hours of practice in your field. But not just any practice. He says experts use something called deliberate practice. In his book, Peak, he talks about a study that tried to figure out what set apart the best of the best. And so in one study of top-tier violin students, researchers found that the primary difference between the best and the best of the best was the total number of hours devoted to solitary practice. Essentially, Erickson says, the ones who rise to the very top are those who spend focused time on their own, developing strength in their field through practice. This applies to our spiritual life, too. There is a level of growth in our lives that, that cannot happen around other people. If you want to fully embrace who God says you are, you must take focused time away, alone, in quietness and trust. Solitude is the deliberate practice of those who are determined to live their true self. Mom also talks about the reality that noise drives more noise. You arrive at a restaurant and there are only a handful of people. Slowly, as more people start to fill in, the noise level goes up. Dishes are rattling and people are talking and there's always that one person with the ridiculously loud laugh. Before long, you're yelling at the person who's sitting right across the table just for them to hear you. Then you add the ambient music and you've got a steady hum of noise. Even if the noise stops for a moment, the music fills the gaps. 
This theory of his is applicable in our own lives as well. It's not true just in crowded restaurants. It's true in crowded minds. When we start to fill our minds and we never give ourselves rest through silence and solitude, our minds just fill with more stuff, which raises the volume little by little until we have to be shouted at in order to actually hear. And yet in the face of that reality, how often do we find ourselves saying things like, I just wish God would talk to me. Or I just wish that God would tell me what I am supposed to do. Very real prayers, very real concerns. We want Moses in a burning bush or something equally as obvious, right? But that's why I love this passage about Elijah that Connie just read for us a few moments ago. Elijah had that moment that we all want, this moment where it is so obvious that God is speaking to us. Elijah was at the very lowest moment of his entire life, so much so that he was hiding in a cave at the time of this story, hiding in a cave. And so God says to Elijah, Elijah, where are you? I'm sorry, he says, why are you here? Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah, who is exhausted, and incredibly sad, responds, Lord God, all-powerful, I've always done my best to obey you, but your people have broken their solemn promise to you. They've torn down your altars, and they've killed all of your prophets except for me, and now they're trying to kill me. This is how Elijah responds to the Lord. He was done. He was so done. He was ready to give up entirely, And so what does God ask Elijah to do? Something super strange, actually. God said to Elijah, Elijah, go and stand out on the mountain. I want you to see me when I pass by. And this is where it gets good. We're going to read this part again, even though Connie just read for us, because it's so good. From 1 Kings chapter 19. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now this is God trying to make a point. The all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, God, he could do anything he wanted to get Elijah's attention. He could tear mountains apart and start a fire out of nothing. But he was not in the wind. And he was not in the earthquake. And he was not in the fire. After all of those things happened that we think would have been where we would have found the voice of the Lord, God came in a gentle whisper. Isn't that nuts? The Almighty God trying to make his presence known to Elijah, and he does so in a gentle whisper. And in that whisper, Elijah knew that it was the Lord. In a whisper. Think about where you have to be in order to hear somebody whisper to you. Whispering doesn't work so well when you're trying to talk to somebody on the other side of the room, does it? Whispering doesn't work long distance. 
This is a good question for us to ask ourselves, actually. If we are frustrated that God doesn't seem to be speaking to us, is it at all possible that all that we have committed to with God is a long-distance relationship? God, we'll call you when we need you. Or if we happen to be thinking about you, we'll shoot you a text. Maybe I'll stop by for a visit once or twice a year. I'll send a postcard for my next trip. If I'm really good, I'll FaceTime or Skype you every once in a while. Right? We exist in these long-distance relationships with God, and then we wonder why we can't hear his voice. Take a look. Take an honest look at your life. And I don't say this in judgment because I'm right here with you. But take an honest look at your life, the busyness of your mind, the condition of your heart. If God were whispering to you right now, would you hear him? Author Elisa Bevere said that I'm certain that the Most High and Creator of all things knew that his children would be arrested and calmed by his very whisper. She says, I find the idea of a God who whispers much more surprising than a God who shouts. Just as deep calls to deep, a God whisper is the echo of the Creator resounding within his children, the created I genuinely believe that God is always speaking to us. I just don't think that we quiet ourselves enough to listen. The great Richard Foster said that one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless, that we are so accustomed to relying on words to manage and control others. He says the tongue is our most powerful weapon of of manipulation. And I think that's true not just in our daily lives, but even in our prayer times. Even when or if we finally make room in our day to spend two minutes or ten minutes in prayer, who does all of the talking? We do. As much as we don't like awkward silences and daily conversation, some of us are even worse with awkward silences with God, and so we do the same thing. We fill the space. And we, to be fair, fill the space with things that God cares about. He cares about our petitions and our thanks and our worries and our struggle. Those things absolutely all matter to God. He wants to hear those things from us. No question about it. But if we fill every moment of our prayer time with talking, it's no wonder we question whether or not God has anything to say to us. Do any of you have people in your lives who, when you're together, they do all of the talking? Even if they pause long enough to ask you a question, they don't pause long enough for you to answer it. You know those people? Don't we do that with God sometimes? Because the truth is that I really think that solitude and silence with God are actually a place of conversation. We just usually forget to be quiet long enough to to allow God to chime in periodically. Pastor Ray Davis says that silence and solitude will make or break your impact in this world because our public life is only as strong as our private life. I'm sure you have all heard the image of the cup that if you keep pouring out to other people without refilling, that you will eventually be empty, right? You will have nothing left to pour. Except that in our culture, I think that so many of us are living with our cup upside down and we're shaking it and we're tapping it, trying to get one last drop of water out of it, but we're depleted and we know that we are depleted. We're short with the people that we love. 
We're finding ourselves more angry than usual. We can't sleep or we sleep too much. We question whether or not this is really the best there is in life. We judge other people. We judge ourselves. The list goes on and on and on because we refuse to go back to the well to fill up. But why do we do that? Why would we refuse to do the thing that we know that we need in order that we would not only survive in this world but thrive? I think that so many people are terrified to be left alone with themselves. Far be it for me to preach a sermon on spiritual discipline without quoting the amazing Henry Nouwen. And keep in mind that he died in the mid-90s, before the advent of the smartphone and social, social media, among other things. This is what he said. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. Think about that for a minute. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. Isn't that the most accurate picture of what we do these days? We fill our lives with noise and people and busyness and work so that we can make not just other people but ourselves believe that we are worth something. It's no wonder so many of us are in the midst of an identity crisis. And it gets worse. Now and goes on to say, but that's not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude... Confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. He says, I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive, or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus, I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false sense in all its vain glory. Okay, so it's a little intense, if not depressing. But I don't actually think that he's wrong. I think that's exactly why so many of us are afraid of sitting in silence and solitude, because it forces us to confront our faults and our flaws and our fears It forces us to confront our worries and our insecurities and our unworthiness. And if that is genuinely where we believed that God was going to leave us, sitting alone in the darkness of our nothingness, then yeah, I can see why we would be quick to avoid solitude. But this is where we have to decide if we are going to practice what we say we believe about who God is. Because the truth is that we can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. We need not be afraid of solitude unless we believe that God won't meet us there. And God's promise is to always meet us there without fail. God may not always say what we want to hear. 
And sometimes he may not say anything at all. But the promise of his presence with us is for all time. Our identity is going to be misplaced or altogether lost from us if we fail to go back to the source of it. And we have short attention spans in an absurdly distracting world, so we need to go back to the source on a very regular basis. When you think about Jesus' time on earth, even he went back to the source to remember who he was. Jesus went off to a lonely place several times because he knew, he knew that the power that he had was given to him by the Father. He knew that the words that he spoke were given to him by the source. He knew that the messages that he taught, the people that he healed, the miracles that he performed all came from the one who sent him. The same is true for us. Now instead, in solitude, we can listen to the voice of him who spoke to us before we could speak a word, who healed us before we could make any gesture to help, who set us free long before we could free others and who loved us long before we could give love to anyone. It is in this solitude that we discover that being is more important than having and that we are worth more than the result of our efforts. In solitude, we discover that our life is not a possession to be defended, but a gift to be shared. And so if you truly want to be fully you, as this series suggests, in order to be fully you, you have to be filled with the one who made you. You have to spend time with the one who made you. You have to allow yourself to hear from the one who made you. We cannot know our true identities apart from time spent with God. We just can't. And so we're going to do just that this morning. I could keep talking, but isn't that part of the problem? (laughs) You come to church ready to hear from me, but how often do we come to church expecting to hear from the Lord? And so we're going to spend some time in silence this morning. For those of you who are used to silence, this time is not going to feel long enough. And for those of you who struggle with silence, this is going to feel like an eternity. I just want to encourage you to try to quiet all of yourself. In Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty your minds entirely, right? Well, as believers, that is not our goal. Our goal is not to empty our minds entirely. Our goal in silent prayer is to empty ourselves so that the spirit of the living God can fill it back up. So let's pray. Holy God, your prophet Habakkuk urges us with these words, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The psalmist invites us to be still and know. God, you showed Elijah and us that to sense your presence and hear your message, we need to be quiet and listen for the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. And so, as we come before you now, quiet our hearts and minds and lives that we would hear from your spirit in these moments.